the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Imagine building a seven-figure business that requires fewer than five hours of work per week. Today's guest, Graham Cochran, did just that. Graham founded The Recording Revolution, a blog about music, and he turned it into a seven-figure business while working only a few hours per week. He joins us today to talk about how to capitalize on the knowledge you already possess. Graham is a business coach, YouTuber, and host of the Graham Cochran Show podcast. He's been featured on CNBC Make It and Business Insider, among others. He's the author of the book, How to Get Paid for What You Know. Welcome, Graham. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here, John. So, Graham, let's start off by talking about the recording revolution. Why did you create this blog, and how were you able to monetize it? Yeah, I created it out of necessity. I had lost two jobs back in 2009 uh, during the Great Recession, which was a lot of fun for many of us, and felt the pressure to make a a living in an alternative way. Uh, I had a new baby, my first mortgage, um, a wife to support, and I I did not want to go back to my traditional job. And I, I didn't know how to do anything else, but I figured if there was a way to do something online, I would love to try to figure it out. And I had experience in the music recording space. I'm a musician by trade, and I went to college and learned audio recording and production and enjoyed making albums for bands and working in a recording studio. And I thought I could maybe put out some content on the Internet, start a blog, start a YouTube channel, show what I'm doing with the little clientele I had as a freelancer in hopes that it would actually generate more freelance clients. And what ended up happening was I I created an audience online um, that was hungry to learn how to do things for themselves. They didn't want to hire me as much as they wanted to learn what I do and do it for themselves. And that's what led to finding different ways to monetize. Why do you think it took off? So many people have blogs today, but they're not able to make a living off of them. Yeah, well, it didn't take off at first for me. I mean, I, the context, it was about, you know, two years of full-time blogging and YouTubing before I was able to make a, a living wage, as it were. I made $7,000 in my first year of doing it full-time. So I, I did not know what I was doing. But, you know, having done this about almost 14 years now, and I've coached, you know, thousands and thousands of people to, to start their online businesses in this way, the difference is um, – a strategy. You know, anybody can start a blog, which is wonderful. Anybody can start a YouTube channel uh, or a podcast and express themselves and share, which is wonderful. But it's the ones who understand the business side of things, the strategy of, okay, well, how is my content going to connect me with my ideal customer? And what would I sell to them? And what is the flow of them just discovering a blog post or a podcast and liking it and then becoming a customer? It's it's a little bit more forethought, um, and that's what I try to teach people in the book and online is, hey, here's the framework. Um, it's not just start a blog and the people will come or the money will flow, but a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel is, is a huge component of the business model. And once you figure out how, and there's many ways to do it, but how to make it work, then you just see it as one you know, piece of the whole machine and it all works together. 
I started this brand and business about the same time that you did, back in 2008-2009. Do you think the market is is too saturated now to have someone break through? No, I actually think it's easier than ever. Um, it's interesting. The more saturated it becomes, people wonder that if you know, have I missed out um, on my my opportunity? I think we're actually, and I I, I could be wrong because now no one knows the future. But from where I stand, I look at this sort of information product that you know some people call the knowledge economy or knowledge commerce. There's this world that we're in where you can sell information online and. I think we're at the beginning of a maybe 30-year wave, so it looks like the wave's already come and gone, but I think we're still at the front of it, and it's much, much bigger than we think, and it'll last much, much longer. And what I've found is the more saturated a, a market becomes, the more content is out there, the more overwhelmed people are looking for good answers. And so where there's overwhelm, there's opportunity. If you can really clarify things and you can um, create just such a simple A to Z process for people... Um, they're going to appreciate that. And also, you know, everybody's different. You know, the way you would teach something, Joan, is different than the way I would teach it. And your experience is different than mine. And some people might like your personality better than mine. And we could teach the same thing. But there would be a people that would gravitate towards you. So you really only have to carve out your little tribe on the Internet um, of people who like you and the way you teach or explain something to make a living online. Graham, you say that we can find success from working just a few hours a week, and so many people are working harder and harder and harder, and they're not getting anywhere. So how does this work? How do we work less and actually achieve more? Yeah, so there's sort of the philosophy of it, and then there's some of the mechanics of the business model. Um, the, the mechanics of the business model are pretty important for what I do in that I don't sell my time like a service. I, I used to. Um, I realized there was a bit of a cap on how much I could charge per hour as a consultant or coach. Um, and how many clients I could take in a given week without burning myself out. And so uh, I moved towards somewhat cloning myself, my knowledge, by packaging it into a digital video course or a, a community or a coaching package that multiple people can go through at the same time, and it's asynchronous. And so in a way, it's, it's not quite as powerful as if I sat down one-on-one with somebody and gave them personalized coaching. But for 80% of the questions people have, an online course that I create will get them the answers they need, and it can be for much cheaper than what it would cost to hire me. But now I can sell it to as many people as possible in an automated way where I'm not exchanging my time to make that sale. So that's a huge part of it is selling a product, not my time, and then selling a digital product at that, which is much easier to, to scale and the overheads are much better. That's sort of the business model that I like, and that's what allows me to work for a few hours in one sense. But the other sense is, is sort of philosophical. I'm a huge fan of the 80-20 rule, Pareto's principle. Um, I, I'm kind of a fanatic in that I always challenge myself and look at everything I do in a given week, day, month for my business, write everything out, every bullet point, every little task, look at it, and then ask myself, uh, is this truly, this task truly necessary to drive the business forward? And I, I, I like Tim Ferriss. He wrote this you know, famous book, The 4-Hour Workweek. He has a great framework of sort of running your to-dos through, and, and you ask yourself, could I just eliminate this task completely and it not really affect my bottom line? Maybe mm-hmm. business goes down a little bit, but not my much. Could I eliminate it? If I can't eliminate it, could I automate it to a piece of software? Um, and if I can't eliminate it and I can't automate it, then can I delegate it to somebody else? to hire somebody on Fiverr or Upwork as a small contractor to handle it for me. And and you can eliminate a lot of the things off your plate going through those three things, eliminate, automate, delegate, and whatever's left that can't be eliminated, can't be automated, can't hire somebody else to do because it requires your face or your voice or your specific skill set, then those are the things remaining to do. And you'll be surprised at how few of those things are necessary in most businesses. Well, and I think the problem is, Graham, that we spend so much time doing all of these little tasks that are really just busy work. And if, like you said, if you get rid of those things, you can scale down your work time. You're absolutely right. I think it takes a lot of honesty with yourself, though, because I think we, we get so used to some of the busy work, whether it's keeping your email tab open all the time or, or you know, 
scrolling through social media or even posting to social media as if I, if I post more then my business will grow. I, I'm in the online business world and where a lot of people assume social media is the most important tool. And I challenge that a lot because I find that it's been a giant waste of my time. I, I, I took a whole year off of social media um, two years ago and my business quintupled. Uh, and so I, I've learned there's not always a correlation between activity, certain activities and how much money is in your pocket. And so it's worth testing those things, but it, it requires you being honest and saying, hey, maybe I've been wasting a lot of time, and most people don't want to confront that reality. You know, it's interesting. When I do get hyper-focused and I'm extremely organized and I'm able to work less and achieve more, I actually feel guilty. I feel like I'm being lazy. Have you ever felt that way? I love this question because I think this is a real problem and a real byproduct of our culture right in America, right? We we really value hard work, which is a good thing, but it's gotten a little out of hand in that we we, we either demonize people who are just, I mean, you imagine if you saw a guy just sitting in a chair in his front yard all day, you'd assume he's lazy or a bum or, or has no job. But what if he's gotten all his work done and his business is relatively automated and he's just enjoying sitting in a chair, enjoying the beautiful day? Uh, we, don't, we don't really value those things. And so we judge others and then we judge ourselves. I, you said the word guilt. I have felt guilt. I struggled with it. I mean, all of my friends were working harder and harder, and here my business was growing as I worked less and less each year. Um, and it, I had no context for a life like that, and no one I could talk to that that could affirm me and say, hey, this isn't a bad thing. It might feel weird. But um, I've had to figure a lot of that out on my own and realize that life is more than just your work. I, I really love the work I do. That's one of the benefits of being in business for yourself. But I don't want to work all the time. I want to be able to take my kids to school every morning. I want to be able to pick them up from school. I want to be able to go to the gym. I want to be able to go for a long walk. I want to be able to have a long lunch when a friend comes into town who I haven't seen in a while. I want to be freed up to do things that are important um, that aren't maybe as important in the world's eyes. Uh, but it does take a process of getting okay with it, um, creating a new normal, and maybe realizing that you might be one of the only people in your friend circle that's experiencing this. So, Graham, when a person decides to set up a program, whether it be a, a webinar or a coaching program or even selling a book, whatever that person decides to do, how does he or she then go about promoting it? Yeah, that's the best question because, you know, without an audience, right, you can't do anything. You can't sell anything. You can't make a living. Um, but if you have an audience of people, then you can sell anything, do anything. It could be a book. It could be a live event. It could be uh, a training and so the audience is the most important thing. And so what I spend my time doing, the one thing that I, I don't outsource because I can't is my weekly content. And so I show up and deliver at least one piece of valuable content that goes out to the world for free every week. So for me these days, it looks like a video podcast. So it goes on YouTube. Uh, it goes on you know Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I might be interviewing a guest or I might be doing a monologue episode where I'm teaching a concept. Um, and I'm creating content in a world uh, that people are looking for that content. So the great thing about, let's say, YouTube is that it's a search engine. If I put a video out on YouTube uh, all about how to you know, figure out your profitable business idea in the next 30 days, that's something people are typing into YouTube, how to figure out if my business idea is going to be profitable or what should my business idea be or how to start an online business or they're searching for content. It's an interesting platform. So if you create content that answers the questions they're typing in or addresses the issues and concerns and fears they have, then your content can show up through the search results and then people can engage with it, see if they like you. And from there, you can have a system that invites them into more of a relationship with you. And that's where you have an opportunity to sell later. But it starts with giving so much value first, creating stuff that's so good, that's free, that's shareable, that's discoverable in a search engine that people say, who is this guy? Or who is this gal, Joan? This stuff is great. I want to know what else she has. And then it begins a relationship. So I'm committed to weekly YouTube content and the podcast because uh, that's really what builds the audience over time. It's not fast, but it does work consistently over time. What I love about your story, Graham, is that when you started it, the way you explained it is that you started it out of necessity. And that's what happened to me. My life basically fell apart, and I needed to figure out what I was going to do. Uh, my marriage ended. I, I lost my family. They passed away. And so you, you know, you, you 
think to yourself, what will my next move be? And I think what stops a lot of people is they say to themselves, well, I don't have an education in that area. I don't have the skills that I need. But like you said, you learn them. I learn them. And I think that can give people a lot of hope. You, you said it. I mean, um, gosh, you know, your story sounds very painful. And, and I think we all have had those moments, but a big or small, where we have to do something different. We have to make a different choice. And there's so much fear. I mean, I was so afraid when I started my business. Um, it wasn't like I had a map of even how the business model worked. I was telling somebody yesterday on a podcast, it's not like I was the entrepreneur looking up the mountain. I'm at the base of a mountain. I'm looking up and I'm saying, wow, that looks really hard, but I have a guide who's going to take me up the mountain or someone who's been there before. Now I know the way. Uh, I didn't even know the way. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had a lot of fear and a lot of people are afraid to start something new. And I didn't know the skills, like you said. And I think that's what's so great about this day and age is it's a much more forgiving uh, hist- you know, period of history where, A, you can get on YouTube and find people like me teaching you the skills you need to know. And if you need to know how to shoot video on your iPhone to a professional, there's a YouTube channels that'll teach you that. If you need to know how to write a sales page, there's YouTube channels that'll teach you that. Anything you need to learn, you can learn for free on good old YouTube University. Um, and I'm sure it's a lot of my clients and students that are teaching you that stuff, which is great. But then the great thing is it's such a forgiving period of time to create a business because no one's really looking for an, an expert that's very glossy, the sort of guru. Um, they're really looking for another person who's real, who's authentic, who's experienced a little bit more life in that area or topic than you have, and they're sharing what they've learned. That's why I don't even like the, the term expert because expertise, it really scares people off where they don't feel like an expert or I didn't go to college for this. But that's not what's necessary. What's necessary is building a human connection, adding value, and just sharing people with people what you've learned, what's worked for you, just like you would if a friend came to you and said, hey, Joan, how do I do what you do? I see you doing this. Where should I start? You say, well, this is how I started. This is what I would consider. This is a mistake I made. That's all we're doing, but on the Internet and mass. And it, it's, it's relatable. It's forgivable. You know, my first videos were ugly looking and sounding. I was scared out of my mind, so I looked like a deer with, in, in the headlights. And it was awkward. But I, I learned and I've gotten better over time. And it's, it's a very forgiving medium uh, and it's a great place to start the process and your fear goes away the more you do it. And so in addition to what you just described, if you could kind of bullet point it for someone, what would be your best advice to help someone get started? Yeah, I would say it all starts with figuring out what is your topic going to be? What is the thing that you want to share with the world that would help people? Um, what have you had experience in? And you might have quite a few things, so I would kind of pull out a piece of paper or a Google Doc and, and put down two lists. On the first list, bullet out everything that you love to talk about, love to help people with, have helped people with before, the thing that your friends text you for advice on or call you for advice on or whatever, um, or just things that you enjoy talking about. Uh, and, and don't censor yourself. I mean, my list would include um, football, uh, eating pizza, going to the movies, um, personal finance. I always dork out over that. I love reading investing books. That's something I've learned a lot about. And it's fun. Um, music, music recording, building a business, um, parenting, um, you know, marriage. Um, I'm not an expert in any of these things, but I've done a lot, all of them for many, many years. So I would list all those things out. And then you would make a second list, which is, okay, of those things on your list, which of those is valuable in the marketplace? meaning which of these is a topic that people are already spending money on. And one way to find that out, um, there's lots of ways, but one way is to just get on Amazon and look in the books. Look at what books are being published, if any, in that topic or niche. Are there books around personal finance? Are there books around marriage and parenting? Are there books around the NFL or football? If there are books that are being sold that were put out by major publishers, um, then you know that there's money to be made because these publishers have already done the research. They've already bet on this topic being a sellable topic. Um, maybe the author's not the best author. They're always taking a chance on an author, but the topic they really believe in. And so you get a sense of, okay, big picture, this is a marketable niche. You don't want to jump into a space where you don't know if anyone's spending money because um, then you're really taking a risk. But from there – you can say, okay, well, what else could I learn? I love staying on Amazon. I'll look at some of the top books that are sold in that topic, and then I'll 
look at the reviews and I'll skip the five stars. I'll skip the one star. I'll just look at the two to four star reviews because these are honest reviews of people who liked certain things about the book and didn't like other things. And they'll tell you a lot about what they're looking for, what problems they have, what desires they have. And it's just simple market research to know what real people are thinking around your topic and niche. And you start to get a picture of, wow, there's people in this area that need help, want help, and here's what they want to accomplish or do or see realized in their life. And if that matches up with one of the things on your list of passions, you know, expertise, experience, knowledge, uh, then it's worth testing even more. And you can reach out to friends, family, people on your social circles and say, hey, if I were to create some content around this, um, what would you say your biggest challenge is around this topic or niche? Or what, what are your biggest hopes or dreams in the next 12 months around this topic or niche? And just continue that conversation of researching and you know, maybe spend a week or two or three doing this, and you will have so much more clarity on what you might want to talk about, might want to help people with. And you may not like it forever. Maybe it's not the best one, but it's a great place to start. The book is How to Get Paid for What You Know. If you'd like to learn more about Graham and his work, you can visit GrahamCochran.com. Graham, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that you have way more value inside of you than you know. And there is a world out there that is set up to reward you for that knowledge, that experience, that, that, that um, passion. And so all you need to know is figure out the mechanics of the business model and, and experiment with it. I, I think people are sitting on a gold mine. I write this in the book. I think people are sitting on a gold mine. They don't even realize it. Uh, and they have so much more value to offer the marketplace. This is a world that values and pays for ideas, education, thoughts. Uh, and it's a great business to be in. And anyone can start it, even with just 30 minutes a day on the side. And it can grow with you as you grow. Um, it's worth exploring and seeing if there's something in it that you really enjoy yourself. And once again, that's how to get paid for what you know. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. What is food freedom? Some people think it's being free to eat whatever you want, and that's true as far as it goes. But let's look at the flip side. Food freedom is also being free not to eat certain foods. Let me explain. Most of my life, I was not free to pass by an offering of cookies, donuts, or potato chips without partaking. And once I had one, I'd always have another. While I felt free to eat those things, I was absolutely not free to not eat them. Food freedom is about being truly intentional with your food choices. I'm certified health and wellness coach Julie Sloan, and I help people find food freedom and transform their relationship with food and health through a 90-day challenge where I focus on mindset, food psychology, and nutrition to help you understand what's really going on with your cravings and emotional eating. Do you want food freedom? Visit me at wellandgrounded.com. That's wellandgrounded.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book, so, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Dr. Irfan Admani, the Chief of Cardiology at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Dr. Admani is here to share ways we can keep our heart healthy. Welcome, Dr. Admani. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you for having me. Well, Doctor, according to the CDC, heart disease has been the leading cause of death in the United States since 1950. But the good news is that there's much we can do to reduce the risk. So what are some of the biggest risk factors for heart disease? The biggest risk factors continue to remain uh, traditional. I mean, one of the 
risk factor that we constantly are challenge is diabetes. Diabetes is a systemic disease and it really increases your risk of heart disease. So diabetes is definitely considered one of the highest risk uh, creator for heart disease. Uh, the other risk factors include high blood pressure, uh, abnormal cholesterol profile that some people tend to have, and that could be due to uh, environmental factors, that could be genetics, so that's another risk factor. And there are certain lifestyle uh, um, changes that we can do, such as uh, quitting smoking, which tremendously helps and is known to reduce your uh, prevalence and incidence of heart disease. And uh, physical activity also should be mentioned here because lack of physical activity creates another additional risk factor as well. Now, there are some other risk factors such as genetics, which unfortunately we don't have any control over. But I feel that just assessing the other risk factors and bringing them down may help us uh, improve our risk of heart disease and prevalence of heart disease in this country. Doctor, how does heart disease usually present? What are some of the warning signs that we should not ignore? Some of the common symptoms are chest pain, shortness of breath, increased heart rate or palpitations. You feel like your heart is raising in your chest, and that is considered also a subtle sign of heart disease. The other thing is poor exercise tolerance. Um, If you're able to do things in the past that you're not able to do anymore from a physical standpoint, then then a person should uh, consider looking into their heart and get a heart evaluation done to make sure that your exercise tolerance is not decreasing due to heart disease. So those are some of the uh, cardinal symptoms, but there are other minor symptoms such as fatigue, uh, inadequate sleep can sometimes be related to heart disease, and as well as, you know, depression also is becoming a subtle sign of possible heart disease. So those are the salient features of presentation for heart disease. Some of the classic symptoms that you just described, does it present differently in women? Yes, we have known that women tend to present differently uh, with symptoms when it comes to heart disease. Um, Women don't have the typical symptoms that men do. And um, over the years, we have come to realize that we are underdiagnosing heart disease in women for that particular reason, because this presentation is very atypical. So for women, we look for other other symptoms such as fatigue, lack of activity, uh, poor mood, depression, and even atypical symptoms such as pain anywhere between your tip of your nose and navel can, can be considered as a possible symptom for heart disease in a, in a female. And so, doctor, what would be some of the things we should be avoiding in our diet? So sugars have been implicated uh, to cause, you know, increase in your resistance to insulin, especially ex- exogenous you know, sugar intake, the sugars that we intake from outside. And most of the sugars that are available commercially are processed form in terms of you know, sugar cane syrup, you know, type of things, cornstarch and things like that. So those things have to be cut down. As far as meat is concerned, meat should be moderated. Um, consuming meat, especially red meat, on a daily basis is probably not advisable. Uh, those two things are probably the uh, uh, place to start with. And then increase your intake of fruits and vegetables. Uh, We know fruits and vegetables are much easier to digest by our uh, digestive system and probably will play a big role in improving your diet and improving your overall health. So those are the few things I would consider. As far as cholesterol is concerned, once again, there's good cholesterol, there's bad cholesterol. Uh, We can talk about different types of fruits and vegetables and other types of meats that have different ratios of good and bad cholesterol. So that's also something we can look into and advise our patients as to what they should be consuming. Doctor, so many people have been living a a pretty unhealthy lifestyle. We're not eating right. They're not moving properly. Is it possible by making some of the changes that you're suggesting, can we reverse some of the damage that we've done to our body? Absolutely. I think you can reverse some of the damage that has been done to your body. body. It may not be a complete reversal, but at least you'll be moving towards the right direction. Um, I think changes made early in your life, um, I'm advocating that when you uh, start becoming, in uh, your age starts to get to in your mid-40s, and that's where you know, our bodies start changing, our metabolism slows down, and things begin to, the disease processes start to you know, be created in your body. 
So those are the that's the time where you should take some sort of an action and look into your lifestyle and see what changes you can make in terms of diet, exercise, and your overall lifestyle. Um, I know I didn't mention the stress part, mm-hmm. but stress is also known to play a huge role in in heart not only heart disease but other forms of disease, including cancer. So management of stress, which is once again a very complicated topic, also should be. Uh, included in this whole spectrum of things that we are trying to do to improve your cardiac health. And if our listeners would like to learn more, you can visit newbridgehealth.org. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John, for having me. And um, I'm glad I'm able to uh, provide some information. And uh, we are more than welcome to uh, come see us. And we will uh, help you take care of your heart. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. We're all going to get older. There's nothing we can do about that. But did you know that you also have a biological age, which scientists can measure by assessing how your genes are expressed through epigenetics? According to today's guest, Dr. Cara Fitzgerald, exciting new research shows that your biological age can actually move in reverse. Dr. Fitzgerald shares a diet and lifestyle plan that shows you how to influence your epigenetics for a younger you. Dr. Fitzgerald lectures globally on functional medicine. She is on the faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine and maintains a clinical practice in Newtown, Connecticut. She is the author of the book, Younger You, Reverse Your Bio-Age and Live Longer, Better. Welcome, Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's great to be with you today. So, doctor, we're going to get older. That's a fact. Many of us may not like it, but it is inevitable. But you say that even though we're aging chronologically, we can reverse aging biologically. What does that mean? Yeah, so chronological aging, can't do anything about it, number of birthdays we've had. But how fast we're aging physiologically is something that, A, we can measure reliably, and B, emerging research, including my study, suggests that we can slow it down or even reverse it. So it's a very, very exciting time in science and medicine. How much of a reverse are we able to achieve? So, for example, if you're 55, what can you actually do biologically in reverse? Like, where can we go? What's what's a reasonable expectation? Our study demonstrated that an eight-week diet and lifestyle program reversed biological age in the participants by over three years. So eight weeks, we did a a reversal of over three years as compared to the control group. Um, That it's the only study of its kind to date. Uh, There there are a handful of other studies using different interventions over longer periods of time. So there was a a, a trial out of Europe using a year-long Mediterranean diet Uh, that they supplied the participants, and there was a very modest biological age reversal in women, in Polish women. So it was Italian and Poles in this particular study, and so they showed a little bit of a difference in Polish women, but not in men. I mean, it was sort of interesting, their findings. Um, And then there was another year-long study where they used growth hormone injections and metformin, uh, the supplement DHEA and uh, vitamin D, And that study showed about a two-year age, biological age reversal, actually maybe two and a half, and that was a year-long study. The reality is we're just starting to figure this out. There was actually, there was one other trial that was 16 weeks looking at obese, vitamin D deficient African-Americans. And when they gave them, the the group that was given 4,000 IU of vitamin D had a biological age reversal of 1.85. And that was over 16 weeks. So I think our results at this point in time are certainly the most impressive, the shortest period and and, and pretty significant biological age reversal, um, and the only randomized control study. Uh, But we're just sticking our toe in this pond. So Joan, it's a really exciting time. And, you know, this time next year, you know, maybe you'll be talking to me again. And, you know, we're, 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 embarking on a on a new study now and we're we're just going to continue to be reporting. 
Dr. Fitzgerald, what I think is so exciting about this is that many of us, as we age, we tend to think, you know, I've done all this damage over the years. I I haven't eaten properly and I haven't exercised the way I should. And we tend to think that it's too late to do anything about that. But really what you're showing is it's never too late to reverse what we've done over the course of our lifetime. Yeah, that's right. And arguably, it's essential. It's so important. Yes, we do not want to give up. So our study looked at middle-aged men. They were between 50 and 72. So middle-aged, and we were able to do significant biological age reversal. I I mean, no question, we all want to step in wherever we are in this journey and think about biological age and optimizing it. And I also want to say that the older we are, there's some research suggesting the more bang for our buck we'll get in biological age reversal. There's one really cool study looking at exercise, and we get more you know, benefit as far as our gene expression goes, which is how we measure biological age, than younger people. So definitely no time like the present to start, regardless of who we are, regardless of our health history. You know, we can all jump in and, and participate on this journey, and, and I think we all really need to. In fact, one thing that I'll say, and then I'll, I'll stop, is that we, so we're looking at gene expression to measure biological age. Once upon a time, we thought that our destiny was written in our genes, and there was nothing that we could do about it. But science has tipped that paradigm on its head. We now know that gene expression is influenced potently by how we live our lives, what we're eating, uh, what we're doing, what we're thinking, feeling, et cetera. So in fact, we know today that we have a huge say over the quality of our health span and the duration of our lifespan. And, you know, we're talking about age reversal, but really what we're saying is that we have the ability through what you teach to prevent and even reverse disease. And and that's really where it comes into play, like you're saying with epigenetics. So many of us, like, for example, my father passed away of cancer, my mom of heart disease. So those are two things where I could very easily say, I'm predisposed to cancer and heart disease. But what I've learned through the science of epigenetics is that I do have a say to a certain point in, in how this plays out in my own life. And we all do. You have a big say, bigger than you realize. Yes. So I want to back up and say biological age, so how fast we're physically aging, is the biggest risk factor for these chronic diseases, the heart disease and cancer, you know, that your parents experience. So we can think about a couple things. We can think about focusing on biological age and improving the aging journey, and that will, by extension, reduce risk for these, you know, these very ubiquitous chronic illnesses. And... You know, as we do this, we are going to shift gene expression towards a favorable, more anti-inflammatory, uh, more anti-cancer, more antioxidant detox, et cetera. We're going to be shifting our gene expression to kind of support um, optimal health as well. And I want to really emphasize the positive message of of what you're saying, because, you know, especially coming off of this pandemic where we've all felt so helpless, what you're saying is that we have so much power and control over our health when we pay attention to the things we eat and the the way we live, our thoughts and so forth. Yes. These, you know, these daily habits, these daily choices are far more impactful than we realized. And I think that's the promise and the responsibility of this new era, you know, of the, you know, of being able to look at our gene expression, you know, the science of epigenetics. There is some responsibility here. We can't say uh, it's all in our genes, you know, that we have no responsibility around the outcome. Or, I mean, we can say that, but it's, it's not true. In fact, we have a great deal to, to say. We have a big role to play in health outcomes. Doctor, we're such a stressed out society. How does stress impact the way we age? Yeah, so we're also, we're a stressed out society and we're a society that's aging faster than other, you know, similarly developed society. So I I suppose that's no great surprise, right? We tend to do everything faster. (laughs) Um, Stress 
so my read on the literature as far as gene expression and and um, biological age goes is that stress is a potent promoter of aging uh gasoline on the fire of aging um the biological age clock that we used in our study so the pattern of gene expression that we used in our study a full 25 percent of it was dedicated to uh stress responses so genes that are responsive to glucocorticoids or cortisol the stress hormone a full 25 percent there was no other contributing factor as potent as stress you know in my read on on this clock we have to take our stress experience very seriously. A lot of us say, oh, I'm so stressed out. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I have to work, I have to do this, and da, 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 and the kids, and you know, there's not enough money. And you know, there's a, a litany. We're almost powerless over this stress experience. But, you know, all of us can shift it. We can take a minute, two minutes, to just turn the volume down. And I think if we understand how essential it is, um, that we can do that. So we know that stress drives aging forward, but there's also really cool science showing that meditation, Tai Chi, yoga, you know, really healthy practices reverse biological aging. And it doesn't, we don't have to be experienced. We don't have to go live in the monastery in the mountains. Just one episode of meditation in an, in an inexperienced practitioner has favorable changes on gene expression. And so if we keep doing it, it, it can contribute to a reduction in biological age. Has anyone studied the way our children are aging? We have a generation of kids who are more obese than ever before. They're not as active. You know, they, they're experiencing diabetes, high blood pressure, things that you don't yeah. normally find in children. You know, what's happening to them? Yeah. I, I worry about them in the future. Yeah. So there's interesting science here. Uh, in fact, that has been looked at. And yes, it is a pro-aging Phenomena in an appropriately pro-aging phenomena. Um, our kids, so we're supposed to age fast when we're little, you know, when we're babies or, you know, our children age fast. I mean, remember back to your kids when they were babies and infants, it was like they were learning new words by the second or you could see them with a new physical skill so fast. Or, you know, I look at my daughter when she, you know, bangs herself falling or something and she, she healed it's like I can watch her skin, you know, just knit itself back together. They're, they're extraordinary. They're developing and they should be at this breakneck pace. We, th there can be a developmental delay that's driven by um, epigenetics when abuse is there or when there's a lack of affection or insufficient nourishment. So we can see a delay but then, you know, as kids get older and they adopt some of the bad habits that, you know, the, the Western lifestyle uh, can uh, usher in, we can see a phenomena that looks more pro-aging in a negative way. So then what are some things that we can be doing, daily swaps, to turn all of this around, to age in, in a better way for our children and for ourselves? I would argue that we all that we want to be eating for our genes at any age. It doesn't have to be huge uh, sweeping changes, and a lot of this is intuitive. So, processed foods, not surprisingly, you know, high carbohydrate, sugar-rich foods aren't healthy on gene expression at all. We want a whole foods diet. We want it to be vegetable centric fruits are in there, but we don't want high sugar fruits, lots of those dark berries, the polyphenols, the colorful aspects of fruits and veggies are so essential for good gene expression. But we also want nutrients. Um, we call them methyl donors. So the polyphenols sort of direct what's happening on gene expression. And then we want the ingredients of good gene expression that come from foods like, uh, again, greens, nuts and seeds, eggs are really important, beets. Um, and if folks are open to it, a little bit of liver. In our study, we prescribed three servings of liver per week. 
Uh, and I know some people will balk at that, but liver is a rich, important multivitamin in a food matrix. So if you could bullet point the things we should be doing and the things we should be avoiding, what would that takeaway be? Whole foods diet, avoid processed foods. So eat a whole foods diet, avoid processed foods. Do some exercise most days of the week. Avoid being sedentary. Avoid over-exercising. Take a minute to de-stress, whatever that looks like for you. Don't allow the stress experience to dominate and overwhelm you all of the time. Step out of that. Sleep. (laughs) Sleep is essential for healthy epigenetic expression. Pay attention to what you need to do to get a good night's sleep. I outline all of the hacks that I've used to ensure that I get a good night's sleep most nights. Doctor, listening to you make this list, these are things that most of us know we should be doing. Why do you think we don't? Well, you know, I think that we... I think that, that, that the whole agribusiness, I mean, I think our, our culture shifted, you know, a, a long time ago towards a modernization um, that's antithetical to health. Like we moved away from eating this way. I mean, we certainly evolved eating this way and being this way, sleeping, exercising, movement was a part of life. Uh, and as we entered into the so-called modern era, um, we just omitted a lot of these foundational practices uh, from our lives. I think, you know, industry has certainly stepped in to make a lot of money off us, make a lot of money off of prepared foods, um, you know, foods of lesser quality. Uh, I think it's just, I think it's multifactorial. You know, and certainly in medicine, being a physician, uh, we didn't appreciate the level of the importance of nutrition. You know, modern medicine really kicked nutrition to the curb, kicked diet to the curb uh, for the sake of, you know, drugs and procedures, et cetera. Uh, We're now obviously realizing that that was, you know, a deep error that we're going to be paying for for a long time. And And we really need to turn the paradigm back to, you know, an earlier time. There's so much talk these days about boosting immunity and everything you're teaching is what should be shouted from all of the rooftops. Yeah, that's right. So we know people who are most vulnerable to the ravages of COVID are people who are aging biologically faster. Um, So yes, all of these interventions will help us uh, optimize our, our immune response without question. The book is Younger You, Reverse Your Bio-Age and Live Longer Better. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Fitzgerald and her work, you can visit drcarafitzgerald.com. That's D-R, drcarafitzgerald.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? We can get younger, and it's really our responsibility to engage in it. So let's get younger together. Amen. I'm on board with you. Dr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be with you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What happens when the engine of your car is constantly revved up? What happens when it runs out of gas? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. Both situations can ruin your day because cars need gas to go and engines that don't break down. Why am I talking about cars? People are like cars. When we're running in a revved up state for too long, eventually we either run out of gas or break down. And it can ruin your day, your week, your month, the year, or many years. It depends on how much damage is done by living in a revved up state or running on empty. You simply can't do it. Your nervous system is not designed to constantly be in a state of hyperarousal. You are always in go mode. And if you do that, eventually you will find yourself revved up and worn out. You may want to go, 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 but you will be unable to. For your health and well-being, you must stop. Do it right now. Notice what your breathing feels like. 
what thoughts you are thinking. Are your muscles tight from tension? Are there other aches and pains? Pay attention. Your body is telling you something. What is it saying? I'm Allison Ayati, and I want to teach you how to relax. Learn more by going to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Is your immune system as strong as you would like it to be? Did you ever question if there is something else you can do to build a stronger immune system besides eating right, exercising, and getting plenty of rest? Energy work, such as Reiki, has been proven to help with reducing stress. We know that stress contributes to inflammation within our bodies, which can eventually wreak havoc on our immune system, potentially creating a host of critical health disorders. The purpose of Reiki is to cleanse, balance, and heal the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual bodies. Most of us pay attention to only our physical bodies. If we experience any adverse effects within our physical body, it normally would raise a red flag and we would seek out medical help. On the other hand, most of us are unaware of how much our mental and emotional bodies contribute to the health of our immune system. For instance, did you ever consider that unresolved anger over long periods of time can cause an unhealthy response? in our liver. Our energetic systems must be in balance in order to create a harmonious vibration, which then contributes to the overall health of our immune system. Why not consider monthly Reiki sessions for yourself and begin working on your immune system? Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified Reiki master. If you would like more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.